Why do so many people from Central America want to come here? Well, if we knew their history like they know their history, we'd understand. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profit, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dignity of man. One of the most frightening crimes is home invasion. And one of the most powerful tools in politics is manipulation of fear. And when Trump painted a scary picture of a mass invasion of people of color from south of our country's current border, it was effective. Fear-mongering is nothing new, but throughout at least my lifetime, we Americans have been justifiably proud that the USA is the land of freedom and opportunity, and we welcome immigrants. It is highly likely that every person listening to this has ancestors who fled to America for freedom, opportunity, and a better life. And think about how bad things would have to be for people to leave their homes. But of course, though, when my grandparents came here, they were part of a huge immigration. Sure, racists and bigots got riled up at Eastern European and Irish people coming to what they believed was a land exclusively for white Protestants, But I don't believe it was pictured as a frightening invasion of the others the same way Trump pictured it. The question is, why do they come, the people from Central and South America? And today our show will consider who invaded whom in an article published by the Council on Hemispheric Affairs titled 175 Years of Border Invasions, the Anniversary of the U.S. War on Mexico and the Roots of Northward Migration. Our guest is anthropology, political anthropology professor David Vine, who writes, if Biden and Harris are serious about addressing migration, they must go beyond the pitifully small increases in humanitarian aid to Central America to end more than 200 years of invasions that are at the root of these causes. Now, most of us, I believe, want to be humanitarian. We were sickened by the separating of families and the caging of children under Trump. So how can the influx of refugees be addressed? Immigration and customs enforcement stabbed gallon jugs of water left for the fleeing, frightened immigrants by concerned North Americans. They try to terrorize and thus disincentivize refugees. Of course, that doesn't work. What is realistic for the Biden administration? What hasn't been tried to find solutions as to what to do now? It's useful to think with history. Our guest is David Vine. Thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Live. Bert, thank you so much for having me. It's great to, great to get a chance to talk to you. Well, David Vine is a professor of political anthropology at the American University in Washington, D.C. His new book is The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. David Vine is also author of Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military Base on Diego Garcia, and Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Well, as I said, fear is perhaps the most effective political tool. Throughout so much history, people in power have manipulated fear to get citizens to ignore their own best interests. Fear is an emotion which can often be more powerful than reason and than facts on the ground. The Trump administration and the right in general have proven to be master manipulators of fear. Before we get into the historical realities of the invasions, in North and Central America. How would you describe how the alleged invasion from South to North in the late 20-teens was pictured and believed? 
I would say it, it was pictured in and in, in much the way that you described that that it was uh, it was pictured it was depicted as as a something that people in the United States should should be afraid of, yeah. uh, that this was an invasion uh, by people from Central America and other scary parts of the world. And, you know, of course, Trump used uh, some of the most uh, racist mm. and, and offensive and um, uh, really disturbing language to describe people who uh, were fleeing and are still fleeing violence and instability, poverty, uh, and are just seeking uh, a, a safe life. And again, it takes a lot to get one to leave your home. And I, I would think that most of us believe we have a right to be home. It, it would have to be some pretty strong dynamics and powerful incentive to make people leave for an extremely risky journey. But the motivating factors have been building for a very long time in Central America. We in the North are almost entirely unaware of the history that Central Americans know so well, since casual historians like to take uh, years uh, that end in five or zero as significant anniversaries for reflection, uh -huh. well, there have been many invasions from north to south. April 2021 happens to be, as you say, the 175th anniversary of the start of the so-called Mexican-American War. The man usually considered our greatest president, newly elected Congressman Abraham Lincoln, lashed out against the Mexican War, calling it immoral, pro-slavery, and a threat to the nation's Republican with a small r values. What was he talking about? He was talking about a, a war that, that, like many in, in U.S. history, did not need to happen. He was talking about a war that, that President Polk at the time instigated. Uh, and, and U.S. military personnel knew that they were instigating a war. They were deployed to the Rio Grande region, uh, a, a border area between uh, the United States and Mexico, uh, that President Polk knew uh, would uh, instigate violence would instigate a, a war with Mexico because he, like other U.S. leaders in the 19th century and uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries, for that, for that matter, uh, had some expansionist dreams, dreams of expanding the borders of the United States, and Mexico looked prime for the taking. <laughs> and it really made a huge, huge difference in, in our borders, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that and what it meant for us in so many different aspects. The, you know, there's, there's leftists looking at history over the years, but then, you know, the American State Department is not exactly leftist. As you point out, the U.S. State Department acknowledges that U.S. troops instigated the war with Mexico. You quote uh, then-Colonel Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who was there at the time. What, what was the reality? What was it? Was it what we know, what we today refer to as a false flag operation? Maybe that's a stretch. I don't know. I mean, we now know, for example, that LBJ's Gulf of Tonkin incident was totally bogus and was created to greenlight our war in Vietnam. The Germans alleged that the Polish invaded them in the summer of 1939. Also not true. But please tell us about the pretext that President James Polk set up for this war. Yeah, we can also point to you know, the more recent U.S. war in Iraq and, and, and the, the lies that were used to, to peddle that war and to sell it to the, the public, the fear-mongering about a, a mushroom cloud and weapons of mass destruction that, of course, Iraq did not possess under right. Saddam Hussein. So similarly, uh, President Polk uh, claimed that Mexico invaded U.S. territory and shed, as he said, shed blood, American blood on American soil. And then use that to, to get a congressional declaration of war. Meanwhile, as you, you mentioned, I, I quote U.S. Colonel Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who said, we have not one particle of right to be here. Mm. He said, it looks as if the government sent a small force on purpose to bring on a war so as to have a pretext for taking California and as much of this country as it chooses. And indeed, that is, that is what, what happened in a, 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 a bloody war. It was bloody and, and terrible for, for both sides, U.S. forces and, and Mexican forces, um, but was was worse, far, far, far worse for, for Mexican forces and for Mexican civilians who were subjected to several years of war that, as you 
pointed to resulted in a dramatic expansion in the, the territory controlled by the United States. And uh, seven of, of today's mm. states uh, were, were once part of Mexico uh, and, and were, were the, the result of this, uh, again, terrible and unnecessary war. And I wonder, you know, if there was any punishment for what happened to it. Was there any kind of uh, consequences for uh, the people who led the war? Or did, did, you know, how has history treated it? Has it just been kind of swept under the rug? It's, it seems like it's something that people don't know much about. You know, they've heard of the Alamo, but people don't know much about it. Did anybody have to uh, answer for any of the uh, atrocities? And even before that, what were, what, what did the soldiers the American soldiers see that jarred their consciences so much? What, and what did they do? What did they see and what did they do about it? Yeah, there was a, a during the war and, 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 and in the years after there was, there was definitely opposition and, and people spoke out against, uh, uh. again, against uh, the need for the war in the first place and, and against some of the atrocities during the war. Uh, President Future general and and pre- future president Ulysses Grant said I do not think there was ever a more wicked war than that waged by the United States on Mexico I do not think there was ever a more wicked war than that waged by the United States on Mexico now we might have an argument about whether there have been wickeder wars since in, right. in many ways actually I think it's not worth uh, no. uh, you know comparing the wickedness <laughs> of wars but this was a, a war that involved um, you know, widespread uh, murder, rape, um, assaults on civilians. Uh, a different uh, U.S. general, General Winifred Scott, said in, in 1847, he said, murder, robbery, and rape on mothers and daughters in the presence of the tied-up males of the families have been common all along the Rio Grande. Um, this is what the war looked like. And, of course, this is what war looks like so often. Um, but largely the victors, um, uh, that is the U S government at the time, uh, got away with it. Mm -hmm. And very few people think about when, when, when thinking about the border today, uh, or, you know, for that matter, when thinking about just take Mexicans trying to cross the border, uh, they rarely think about, uh, the fact that they are actually trying to cross into what was Mexican territory, you know, the entire state of California, New Mexico, Arizona, and again, as I said, parts of seven states uh, were Mexican territory until 1848. So the war started in, was it 1846 and ended in 49? Is that right? Or is it, you're more of the historian. I, I'm not sure when it started and ended. It, it ended in, in 1848. Most of the fighting took place in, in 1846 and 47. And uh, the United U.S. military actually occupied Mexico City, um, and uh, Mexico, uh, Mexican government received uh, $15 million in payment for its territory, but this was a, a har- hardly a, a deal ne- negotiated on a no. fair playing, <laughs> playing field. Uh, this is a, a deal negotiated when U.S. troops were occupying Mexican soil, including Mexico City, the capital. Uh, so this was a, a pretty sweet deal from the perspective of, of the U.S. government to get and then to think about the, the you know the wealth of Cal, take California alone the wealth that it has produced uh, for the United States to this day uh, is immense and and in exchange for 15 million dollars it's uh, yeah nothing and you know in America our school kids learn about George Washington Abraham Lincoln things like that and I can't help but think that school kids in Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, etc., have learned about their history as well, and it matters to them. Uh, but we we don't learn about that. You write that President Polk actually wanted even more territory than we got. <laughs> Tell us about that, please. He did, yeah. He he had uh, thoughts of uh, invading the Yucatan Peninsula. He also had the desire to to seize Cuba, which was still controlled by the the Spanish Empire. Eventually, uh, U.S. forces in the War of 1898 would um, take over Cuba uh, as part of the seizure of former Spanish colonies. Um, but uh, during the, the the war with Mexico. 
um, Polk was just one of, of uh, the U.S. leaders who had desires to take more of, of Mexico. Some wanted to, to take the entirety of, of, of Mexico uh, for the United States. And this was, you know, this wasn't just for the sake of taking territory. Um, mm. uh, U.S. leaders, especially Southern leaders, mm-hmm. uh, had an interest in expanding territory on which they could expand uh, the, the practice of, of slavery mm-hmm. um, and expand the, the growing U.S. empire, uh, an empire built on uh, the enslavement of, of, of Africans and, and the agricultural uh, uh, the sale of, of agricultural goods uh, enabled by by the enslavement of Africans. And during this time, you know, slavery was still uh, part of our culture. Or, and it wasn't, yeah, okay, the slavery was just in the South, but the North was benefiting too. The entire country uh, was, was benefiting uh, economically from uh, the practice of slavery. So there's Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, um, and was Colorado part of that as well? Colorado was part of it, parts of Wyoming, uh, Utah, that's, um, and Nevada. That's huge. So what ways did it affect, for example, farming and agriculture in the United States? I'm not an expert on, on, on agriculture, but I mean, it, it, it expanded the amount of land uh, that could be cultivated dramatically. And especially, of course, in, in California, it expanded the amount of incredibly fertile land. Uh, you know, California alone accounts for a huge percentage of the, the agricultural produce um, produced by the United States. Um, and and it accounts for a very significant part of the global production of of ad- agricultural products. Um, so it, it 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 marked the war marked a dramatic transformation in the capacity of the United States to um, to produce food and 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 of course there are other natural resources that um, that the the seizure of territory. Uh, opened up to, to U.S. entrepreneurs, to uh, effectively to the to the U.S. government um, uh, throughout the the territory seized. So a lot of a lot, surprise, surprise, a lot of money was at stake. We uh, it certainly uh, increased uh, American fortunes dramatically by you know with with such a huge huge area, and you know we've heard about the. Uh, uh, the purchase of Louisiana Purchase. That was a lot of land. This was uh, I, probably similar in size, maybe just a little bit smaller, but it was a huge amount of land, what uh, is part of America now. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're looking at uh, the so-called invasion from the South that uh, ex-President Trump uh, was working on so much about, you know, and, and we're looking at who the real invaders were. Uh, we're talking with uh, political anthropology professor David Vine, uh, who's written an article called 175 Years of Border Invasions, the Anniversary of the U.S. War in Mexico and the Roots of Northern Migration. Another big part of American culture is the myth of cowboys. What what part did the massive expansion of the country in the Southwest play in this aspect of American identity? It's a good question. I, I think, you know, the the idea of the frontier was already well-established for Euro-Americans at the time. And the the, the seizure of, of territories throughout the, the Southwest uh, opened up more, uh, uh, an even larger frontier um, for Euro-American settlers um, to to enter and to and to begin to to, to settle land. Um, you know, uh, again, the, the, in terms of the the myth of the the cowboy, I think uh, you know the, the I guess the place one might look is the. Uh, you know the the westerns that are were part of so much a part of our cultural imagination and uh those those westerns you know in a certain sense wouldn't exist were it not for the the conquest of of territory uh during the the war with mexico uh that that landscape that is so much a part of 
the cultural imagination of, of the United States itself. Uh, if you think about, you know, how, how people outside the United States think of the United States, Westerns often are sure. among the first images that come to mind. And that, that, that is land that is defined by, by this war. And, you know, it's interesting. Some, some people on the right would say, no, we're not an empire. We're not imperialist. But, I mean, this, we had an internal empire. We didn't have to go, you know, well, we went to the Philippines for part of an empire and Cuba, but it was just right here uh, in Mexico, which was then a lot bigger, and uh, we have incorporated it. And uh, the people, again, in, you know, in South and Central, Central America and Mexico are familiar with the, uh, the history. And one of the people that I think is probably pretty well known specifically in Nicaragua, but not known at all here, is William Walker. And <laughs> what, what, tell us about William Walker, uh, who he was uh, in the context of American expansionism, and the word filibuster, which means something completely different now. Exactly. William Walker was the, the most famous of the, and, and infamous, especially for those in Central America, of the filibusters. Uh, these were, were really mercenaries. These were individual U.S. citizens who tended to, to organize their own private armies that then went about invading our neighbors, uh, invading Mexico, William Walker did, and other filibusters, uh, and, and even more frequently invading Central America, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. And William Walker made numerous invasions of, again, of Mexico and Central America. At a certain point, he declared himself president yeah. uh, in parts of Central America, uh, declared English the, the national language. There was a complicated relationship with the, the U.S. military at the time. The U.S. military tried to crack down on on this behavior because they didn't want, you know, invasions taking place outside of their purview. Uh, the U.S. military was was had already uh, begun as, as the article. Uh, you mentioned uh, details that had already begun a long series of, of invasions of, of southward invasions of, of Latin America. Um, but Walker and other filibusters um, carried these out on their own. Um, and ultimately, Honduran forces uh, executed him, but again, only after multiple invasions and widespread chaos that he, he brought with him. Uh, the the chutzpah that was involved there to think that he could do that. Uh, I doubt that's a word that many people in Central America are familiar with, but I am, and maybe you are. <laughs> and, but it, but it, 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 it does, it, it is, um, it, it's, it's appropriate, and I think it speaks to the kind of imperial and colonial attitudes that, that U.S., uh, Euro-American men in mm. particular, uh, were were raised on and uh, grew up with, uh, and then practiced and acted on um, the the idea that they could just take what they wanted, take land, take resources, uh, take the the labor of other human beings. Yeah. Uh, and this is what we saw, you know, throughout uh, the 19th century, 18th century, and and in, in many ways, in, in different ways, we, we we see these sorts of attitudes uh, perpetuated to this day. Oh, absolutely, the the uh, Euro-American manliness thing. Yeah, this it's it's dying a hard, slow death, uh, but it is, and people are fighting back as as does happen in history. You know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It happens, and the, the people, as we said, in Central America, are familiar with their own history, even if we're not. You, people know, I think by now, understand. You know, we've invaded Mexico, we've invaded uh, Cuba. But your article in the uh, Council on Hemispheric Affairs lists uh, all the countries that we've invaded. The number of invasions might really startle listeners. It's it's a little bit surprising. I certainly. What is the number? Do tell us about that, please. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. That the people of Latin America are all too familiar with. Yankee invasions and Yankee imperialism, uh, but again, uh, there's part of the ideology of, of the United States and growing up in the United States is is to think of of ourselves that as U.S. citizens as as, as you know ultimately good and, and liberators and spreading democracy. Uh, indeed, the 
history shows that, that the U.S. forces, just the U.S. military, put aside the filibusters, U.S. military has invaded our Latin American neighbors more than 70 times since the 19th century. Um, that is, in, in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, and in, in, in certain ways uh, in, in the last uh, 21 years of the 21st century. Um, uh, in Mexico alone, U.S. forces invaded 10, at least 10 times, uh, and, and Panama 24 times. Um, you know, in many cases, U.S. forces occupied uh, countries for, for years at a time, uh, and again, this is this is uh, the the history that I think underlies the what we are seeing today with uh, the insecurity and poverty and um, violence one sees in, in in large parts of of Central America, in particular, and other parts of of Latin America. That is uh, the context and is the driving force uh, behind people trying to enter the United States in search of safety and security. Yeah. It's hard. It, there's got to be real good reasons. It's got to be really tough for people to get up and leave their homes and, and come here. But the insecurity that's been created down there. And you are careful to say that the U.S. government and U.S. corporations are not solely responsible for the violence, poverty, and insecurity that are the re- that are root of today's migration from Latin America. What What are some of the other factors? Yeah, I, I think it's just important and and. To, to be careful and, and not helpful to sort of portray the United States as this, uh, you know, all powerful, all determining boogeyman or empire. Uh, the United States uh, has ha- had and exerted tremendous power that has influenced really at this point, the entirety of the globe, but especially Latin America more than probably any other part of the world. Um, but there have always been other actors other European empires, of course, have played important roles um, more in the in the 19th century and, and perhaps the very early 20th century. Uh, European empires have played roles in, in of course, shaping the, the history and present day of, of Latin America, the British Empire, the Spanish and Portuguese empires, especially. Um, similarly, you know, European and Canadian corporations have have extracted resources and and wealth from Latin America, much as U.S. corporations have. Um, And we also have to look at how local actors have played a role in shaping the poverty and insecurity. There are, are of course, elites in in Latin America who are elite for a reason, and they have uh, extracted wealth of their own that has contributed to creating the poverty one sees uh, today and, and that one has seen historically that has has fed and and created the the movement, the mass movement of, of people seeking again safety and security at great risk to themselves. I think I'm glad you you emphasize that point again. I really do think people should try to put themselves in the shoes of of people trying to enter the United States and, and imagine what it would take to risk getting to the U.S. Mexico border, knowing. You know the kinds of violence that people and people are well aware of the kinds of violence that that migrants have experienced along the way. Um, the risk of, of murder, of rape, of of accidents, of of horrible horrible violence uh, all along the route to get just to get to the border, let alone to cross the border, which um, has taken the lives of, of thousands of people just the border crossing alone. Yeah, and going in the desert with no water and then having this highly militarized, uh, uh, you know, ICE, the uh, Immigration and, uh, what is that, Immigration? I can't even remember. Customs Enforcement. Oh, yeah, Immigration and Customs. They're so militarized, and they they do make it quite tough. And I wonder about the elites, the autocrats. And and one thinks of, uh, you know, in in, uh, Cuba, there used to be Fulgencia Batista. In Nicaragua, there was uh, uh, Somoza. All kinds of dictators there, and I, I, I wonder. I don't know if there's an answer. If they could be there, have their power, if they weren't somehow getting some benefits from doing business with the United States. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. In addition to you know, I, I, I in my article I describe you know this long series of of military invasions, uh, but right. also point out that they have been paired with 
economic invasions, that is, you know, U.S. corporate interests, U.S. corporations, U.S. business, again, mostly businessmen, yeah. um, inva- invading in a different sense than the, the sense of, of dominating uh, many of the, the economies uh, of, of Latin America, again, especially Central America. Um, but there have been, you know, political forms of invasion in the sense of the, the political power that, that U.S. government officials have, have wielded over, uh, over the, the leaders and governments of, of, of Latin American countries. Uh, and, and often this has, has played out in the, the form of U.S. government support yeah. for, for repressive regimes, for dictators, um, uh, including those you mentioned. And, you know, there are elites of those countries as well, the people who live, you know, behind the walls and, uh, and really, you know, it's not like there's a middle class. I, I don't know. I haven't been uh, in those areas in a long time. Well, I will say, I, I was in Peru in 1977. I went, and just this little story, I was in a family's hut in the town of Huancayo. The wall was, on the wall was a black velvet painting of President John Kennedy. And I suspect it is partially his respectful alliance for progress and the fact that he was Catholic. Uh, but before his presidency, FDR had what he called the good neighbor policy. And I wonder if that might be a, a model that perhaps President Biden can uh, can follow or, you know, what, what, what happened to the good neighbor policy after uh, uh, FDR was no longer president after he died in 1945? Yeah, the the good neighbor policy did bring an end to the long series of of invasions that were were very regular throughout the 19th century and even more in the early 20th century um, with uh, U.S. invasions and again frequent long term occupation of countries including the Dominican Republic, Haiti, uh, Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Panama. Um, FTR did put a stop to to those invasions and did try to craft a different relationship with Latin America that I, I agree could be something of a model for the Biden administration. And in my mind, is is what we need. We need a dramatic transformation yes. in in U.S. foreign policy with the entirety of the world, but but beginning with with Latin America in many ways. And this has to mean uh, an immediate cessation of the kinds of uh, meddling um, that have involved not just U.S. direct invasion of of our neighbors, but of course the kind of uh, meddling in in politics, the kind of backing for coups that you know has taken place as recently as the last uh, decade or decade and a half in Honduras and yes. Bolivia, in complicated ways in Venezuela. Um, this this has continued, and 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 the. You know, including in in the 20th century under President Kennedy, um, you know, the good neighbor kind of uh, rhetoric or the alliance for for progress right. in in his administration, um, you know, what was the sort of uh, the the cover for uh, more uh, covert kinds of uh, intervention that that uh, allowed U.S. officials to to control much of, of Latin America uh, in, in ways, again, that, that continue to this day. Uh, and there are options. There really are. And we're looking at why uh, there's this northward migration now after so many uh, uh, invasions from the north going south. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is uh, political anthropology professor David Vine. Uh, his article in Council on Hemispheric Affairs, 175 years of border invasions, the anniversary of the U.S. war in Mexico and the roots of northern migration. And, you know, it's interesting, that cover. I've wondered about the uh, Alliance for Progress, if it was, you know, kind of a, a cover. Yeah, we'll, we'll help you. We'll look good. I, and um, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris has talked about helping more. And it sounds good. And I, I wonder, I don't know much about what, uh, which, what she has in mind. She, she, she's talked about increasing humanitarian aid to Central America so that people can stay in their homes, making sure the money goes not to the old oligarchs, oligarchs as in the past, but to the actual common good. What, what do we know about that? I mean, it sounds really good, uh, but I, I wonder your sense of that. 
we don't know nearly enough, yeah. uh, I think is, is the short answer. And, and you know, the, the details have been few and far uh-huh. between them. You know, the, the, there are signs that this is a, 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 you know, far more progressive and encouraging kind of relationship that, that the Biden-Harris administration want to build. And, you know, their talk of wanting to address the root causes of migration is, is of course, needed, not just talk, but, but action. Yep. You know, the provision of humanitarian aid is is important, but uh, so far they've only talked about a very small, relatively speaking, increase in humanitarian aid. And, you know, I I, I think we need to uh, look directly at, at the long history of, of damage that, that the United States has, has wreaked in, in, in Central America and, and the kinds of, of uh, you know, I think reparations that the United States should be paying should be paying to repair some of that damage um, go far beyond uh, you know an increase of a I think they've talked about a billion dollar increase in humanitarian aid um, that that is a, a pittance and and would not go nearly far enough to address the root causes of migration the poverty the violence that one has seen um, uh, and yeah there's far more to, to to, to go, but but I, I think at, at very least we see an openness on the part of the Biden Harris administration that that we need to take advantage of and and to build on and to push them to do far far more. So much to be done to to get to the root causes. Unless you get to the root causes, no matter how big of a wall that Trump wanted to build, it ain't gonna work. It's it, it's you know you have to get to the root causes of things, and you know you have to. You can't just deal with the uh, the effects, but but the causes. One thing we haven't mentioned yet is the so-called war on drugs. That's been you know presidents from Nixon on down have have touted that and trumpeted you know ah we're making a war on drugs. <laughs> what has been the effect of that on the people living in those targeted areas? The war on drugs has been disastrous. Uh, the you know the the war on drugs has. Uh, only, I mean, it's, in its own terms, it's been disastrous. It has uh, led to increased supply of drugs, the lowering of the price of drugs, and really horrific violence. I mean, Mexico it's, alone has been in a state of effective civil war for, for years, um, yet it's been fueled by the war on drugs. Uh, the, the whole approach of criminalizing uh, drugs has yeah. clearly been a total failure, um, and has again led to tens of thousands of, of deaths in, in Mexico alone, but of course throughout um, large parts of, of, of Latin America, uh, the, the damage of the war on drugs has been has been felt. Uh, and and it of course, like in prohibition against alcohol, the uh, crime syndicate did very well. I'm sure they didn't want to have liquor, you know, alcohol made legal again because it was so profitable. And war on drugs, you know, obviously it uh, exacerbates the violence problem, the drug gang problem. You know, and, they, and they, Trump painted the picture of this M13, I think it was called, I can't remember, you know, and just these drug gangs. And if it's not profitable, you know, there'll be less of it. And, you know, considering the discrimination, the racism, that does happen here. Uh, one has to think about, you know, if uh, people are treated as second-class citizens and face consistent violent attacks. I'm reminded of the Zoot Suit riots in 1943 when the military beat up on uh, on Mexican, uh, Central American people uh, in, in around their military base. So given that, Aren't there other places people would rather go? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that I mean, it, it is it is a a, a sad statement, um, but but speaks to the, the the power relationships involved, and 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 again, the relative wealth that, of course, the United States has as a country has accumulated, uh, thanks in, in in part to, of course, the. The, this long series of invasions, and that's why you know that, that that the U.S. military and the U.S. government more broadly, and U.S. corporations and economic interests have have carried out uh, for more than 175 years. Um, so, uh, but 
that 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 wealth um it, it's unsurprising that that people would want to uh-huh. seek a better life in the united states given the the degree of, of poverty and instability and violence especially uh, in, in in central america yeah and it's interesting even though you know there's this uh attack on on immigrants uh from you know the south of our border fact is a lot of the republican business interests uh profit very nicely from hiring people from that area to work for less and uh the, the workers themselves you know i'm sure they make out better in most cases or in often cases than than they did back in uh where their home was and you know one of the classic uh, uh cases of imperialism is uh when uh, Teddy Roosevelt stole Panama from uh Colombia uh, because they wanted to build a canal for our business interests. And the U.S. gave the Panama Canal back to Panama in the 1990s. And this was just after President Bush authorized Operation Just Cause, the U.S. invasion of Panama to overthrow our former guy, Noriega, in 1989. We in North America were shielded from the realities of it. The people there were quite well aware from what little I know, and it, it is little, it, it was ugly for a lot of Panamanians. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, the one of the many um, often forgotten wars that the, the U.S. military has, has waged, um, you know, this, this war allegedly because uh, Manuel Noriega was a, a drug dealer, you know, to, took a terrible toll on, on Panamanians, um, 300 Panamanian military personnel, more than 200 unarmed civilians were, were killed in the U S invasion. Um, thousands more were, were, were wounded, um, during this, this brief war. Um, uh, you know, one of many where, where I think we have to, that's in my mind forces us to, to, to really rethink, you know what? What right the United States has, the United States military has, to go invading uh, countries left and right um, and so frequently? When we when we think about U.S. wars, we don't think about uh, the costs that have been borne by the the, the people and, and countries that have been I- invaded, like Panama. Um, uh, sometimes, of course, there's some attention paid to the the, the costs borne by U.S. military personnel, and, and, and we should pay attention to, because I see U.S. military personnel, vast majority of them, as among the victims of Absolutely. the long history of, of U.S. wars. Um, but so often we forget the, 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 the damage, the, the, the harm, the deaths suffered by, by the people who've been on the receiving ends of, of U.S. wars like those in Panama. It's not exactly the best way to make friends, I wouldn't think. You know? <laughs> Uh, from from my read of history, and I'm totally amateur, but I like history, it seems that empires always implode. If you look at France, England, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, the people who've been exploited come back to the center of the empire. Is this the case here now with Central Americans? Well, I, I think um, it is helpful to to think about the the broader global uh, context and the and and the the larger context of, of other empires because I I do think what we're seeing with Central Americans and other Latin Americans and and actually other people from around the world trying to migrate into the United States through the U.S. Mexican border, I think it, it, the, the parallels with uh, people trying to migrate into Europe from from Africa are are are, are stark. Um, uh, the, the, there's a there's a reason that things look so similar. People in, mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. Mexican border are trying to cross a desert in, in in to try to enter Europe. Migrants are, are crossing the Mediterranean Sea, and and tragically, terribly, they're dying in by the thousands in in both cases. Um, and in both cases, we're seeing largely people coming from co- former, formerly colonized right, lands right. attempting to to under to enter the the the, the metropole, the the home uh-huh. of the, the the former empires that that aren't aren't just former empires. They are 
in a in a variety of ways and to a variety of extents still empires that Britain and France have still maintained colonies. The United States, of course, maintains colonies um, and has, I think what's important to point out with the relationship with Latin America is that, you know, even absent formal colonies, the United States government in particular has maintained a colonial, fundamentally colonial relationship with large parts of, of Latin America. And again, uh, nowhere worse than in, in Central America, where the, the countries are, are so small, so impoverished, and so lacking in, in power. Um, you know, I, I really think we should think of, of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador in particular as, as de facto colonies, and, and that they've been that uh, since uh, really the early 20th century. Um, and of course, again, this is what needs to change. And we've all heard the term banana republic. And we in America, North America, eat a lot of bananas. How vital to empire is it that there be banana republics? Well, it, it, in, in you know, all empires are, are, are different. And uh, the United States empire... Uh, became a different kind of empire in the 20th century and then again in the 21st century. Uh, and rather than relying on, on formal colonies in the 20th century, for the most part, the U.S. leaders, U.S. government officials, again, sort of created these de facto colonies. And then that is the original meaning of the term banana republic. Um, it's a, a term coined by O. Henry to, to describe de facto colonies. It's not, you know, most people think of, you know, either bananas, the fruit or or the, the, the clothing company. But right. um, it described uh, Honduras in particular was the model of the, the banana republic uh, countries that, that are effectively ruled by, by outside Forces, in particular the United States, um, and, and and ever since um, U.S. business interests began to dominate uh, the banana industry and and, sure. and controlling large parts of the the productive land in, in Honduras and other parts of, of Central America, the U.S. government has, has similarly exercised outsized control in the region. And you know, I, I think all of us should think about. How would we feel about being invaded, about some big, powerful uh, other country with its uh, economic interests taking us over and, and forcing us to live in poverty and fear? You know, of course, we would want to do something. And people, you know, there was the invasion of uh, the coup in, in Guatemala so that Bananas could be grown by uh, Chiquita Banana, I believe it was. And then September 11th, 1973, when the uh, popularly elected government of Chile with Salvador Allende was overthrown with the help of Henry Kissinger. You know, people don't forget that quickly. <laughs> it, it may be far away from us, but they're going to remember. And, and, you know, we have to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Of course, that is exactly the opposite of what these right-wing Trumpist Republicans do. <laughs> I mean, they won't even get vaccinated. But anyway, that's another story. So you see, what are some of the options? You know, it's been called a crisis at the border. I've been a little bit surprised that the mainstream media has bought into that, that, that term crisis at the border. What do you think of that term, first of all? Yeah, I think we should always be careful and, and a little suspicious when anything is is portrayed as a crisis and, and ask ourselves, okay, what, what what's really going on here? Because it does sort of trigger some automatic um, fear responses and, and an automatic uh, assumption that we have to do something. Um, and I think it, you know, it, it's it's important to, to maintain a, a, a clear head. You know, if there's a crisis at the border now, there's 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 been a, a crisis, a long-standing crisis that, that my article and uh, was trying to point to a, a crisis in, in the relationship between the United States and 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 the rest of the the hemisphere. Um, so I, I think we could we could start there. I, I think clearly there there is a crisis in uh, again, especially Central America, especially Guatemala, Honduras, and, and El Salvador, given the the, the as, as well as Mexico. Um, just looking at the the violence one sees in those countries alone, 
Um, and again, we can't separate that violence from the actions of, of the United States and the U.S. government. And, and the U.S. government has played a, a, a critical role in, in creating and, and shaping that violence that I, I think we bear responsibility for and, and thus bear a responsibility for, for finding ways to reduce the violence, to reduce the, the, the poverty one sees uh, in, in Central America, um, and address, again, indeed, the, the, the root causes that are leading people to flee. And then I think we really should think in terms of flight. And the, the people uh, attempting to, to enter the United States from, from Central America, and, and I think to, many extent, to a great extent from, from Mexico too and other parts of the world, often you know, should be thought of as, as refugees. Yes. Um, but I, I think this is especially the case in, uh, for, for, for people fleeing Central America where um, the you know U.S. influence and, and U.S. destructive influence has been most extreme. Uh, I think there there are many options. I mean, one that well, I, I think the Biden and Harris administration is at least thinking and making some signs in the right direction in terms of increasing humanitarian assistance and, and addressing some of the root causes. But I think it needs to be scaled up dramatically. And needs to be freed from the long-standing forms of, of uh, so-called humanitarian assistance and, and other forms of economic aid that that have so frequently not been fundamentally about improving the lives mm. of, of Central Americans, but instead have been uh, driven by an effort to, to further strengthen U.S. influence and control in the region. Yep. Um, so this can't all just be a cover for, for deepening U.S. control, um, but instead has to put the, the needs and lives and well-being of, of, of people in Central America and, again, other parts of of Latin America, has to, they, the, those lives have to have to be first and foremost. Um, I think clearly the the immigration system needs dramatic change, and you know one one thing one option that that has not been uh, given nearly enough attention. Although there are actually people across the political spectrum who are increasingly talking about this option, that is the the option of of uh, effectively open borders that. Um, uh, that the borders themselves are a, a kind of, of violence and, and in a variety of ways, there are many arguments to be made that, that opening the borders, which, which doesn't mean just simply, you know, uh, removing all border restrictions entirely. There's, there are ways you could have effectively open borders like the countries of, of the European Union have. Um, people can cross from France to Germany freely. They can cross um, within the European Union without border restriction. Um, and in our example of how you can open borders and, and uh, the result is not the kind of chaos that, that, that people uh, frequently uh, fear monger about, mm-hmm. um, uh, but there are economic reasons why open borders are a good idea. There are humanitarian reasons why open borders are a good idea. Uh, some have called for opening up the border as a, as a form of reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you don't even have to go there because I, again there there there's research that shows that opening borders is is good for the economies on in both directions both the the receiving country where people will tend to migrate to and the the country where where people will leave because of the receipt of uh, of money um, that people tend to send back to their home country once they uh, find employment in the in the, in the on the other side, um, uh, and, and again, I think we should think about you know the, the 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 very morality and ethics of borders. You know, why can Ted Cruz freely you know travel to Mexico and enjoy a lovely vacation there uh, when people are sitting at the border on the other side trying to get into the United States? I think they're basic questions of, of fairness and 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 the ethics uh, that you know just because I by sheer dumb luck was born in the United States I get a, mm. a blue passport and can travel almost anywhere in the world at least in non-COVID times right. um, including into Mexico and and Central America uh, and Latin America you know is that just uh, I think these are some of the questions that, that we should be asking. And there's clearly a sense of, of racism. I mean, that's a big, big part of it. You know, even President Trump said, oh, yeah, we can have all the uh, immigrants from uh, Scandinavia, but not from 
South and Central America. Their, the color of their skin absolutely matters. And I, I did find it very concerning that a lot of the uh, people were coming here trying to get refugee status. And I think it's fascinating that, you know, if, like in in earlier times, if anybody came from uh, countries in Eastern Europe, those under the uh, Iron Curtain, as they used to say, oh, yeah, they're refugees. But how can they be refugees from a country that we support, where our their leaders are, you know, our buddies? So, I mean, just not even allowing people to apply for refugee status, that just... It's, it's pretty appalling and, and just goes against, to me, any sense of, of fairness and, and decency. So I wonder what, how we can reframe the issue uh, and such that the people of Central America start to have a right and an ability to stay home, to really address the roots. What do you think? It's yeah, I mean, I mean it, it, it's very, very difficult, um, but, but requires a, a fundamental rethinking of the role of the United States in the world. I think that that is uh, uh, one starting point. You know, I, I do think the um, the Marshall Plan after World War II in Europe does provide something of a model uh, where the United States helped rebuild Europe. Now, this was not, you know, simply out of the goodness of U.S. leaders' hearts. Uh, U.S. corporations benefited from the Marshall Plan. Oh, sure. uh, U.S. leaders were trying to, you know, ensure the stability of, of Western Europe uh, to create a, a, a block of allies. Um, but, you know, the people of Europe benefited from the Marshall Plan. And I think uh, we could envision a similar, far more robust, far broader uh, effort to rebuild and uh, rebuild the, the, the economies of, of Central America in particular uh, and, and thus to rebuild the, the, the stability of, of people's lives. Um, but I, I think migration is going to be a reality no matter what, well, in, in the short term, um, and, and indeed has a role to play in advancing uh, economic development in, in Central America and other parts of, of Latin America, um, because once people uh, get jobs in wealthier countries, including and beginning with the United States, um, they can send money home and those, 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 um, that money um, then becomes uh, the sure. basis for further economic development. And I have to think a new Marshall Plan might be more effective than a wall, you know? Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Professor David Vine, whose new book is The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. Thank you so much for being with us today and shedding light on what the roots are and how we can really, really address it. Thanks. Bert, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Oh, mama, mama, look there. You should not playing in the street again. Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there. The cocaine guns jammed downtown. Killing clowns of blood money men Washington Washington bullets again As every cell in Chile will tell The cries of the tortured men Remember Rene in the days before Before the army came Please remember Victor Hara In the Santiago Stadium There's Washington bullets again And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961 A banner for the playboy and the Cuban sun For Castro is the color, is a redder than red Those Washington bullets want Castro dead For Castro is the color The new spray of lead Washington, what else do we do? Yeah. If we can find enough 
Can rebel at the Moscow bullets pissed Ask him what he thinks of voting communist Ask the Dalai Lama in the hills of Tibet How many months did the Chinese get In a war-torn swamp, stop any mercenary Check the British bullets in his 